Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down Great dead. women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Ah, salam and good evening to you, worthy friend. Please, please come closer. Too close, a little too close. There. Hello and welcome. I am Jen Hansen, and sitting across from me is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Yo. Charlotte. Yo. Jen. Yo. Paladin. <laughs> so that was a clip from the Bollywood Hindi version of Aladdin. 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 Which is with one L. I mean, one D. One D. One D. They all have yeah. one L. <laughs> you think I know this by now. It's hard to keep up because then even the name of Aladdin is like the Aladdin and the Magical Lamp or Aladdin's Adventures and or just Thief of Baghdad or... Alibaba isn't Alibaba similar wasn't that used sort of in it got it got mixed in there with some translations in America okay and uh you know us Americans we like to uh take the good parts of stuff and make it into one good thing no I don't know (laughs) that was not a accurate observation at all but yeah they they tend to mend those two together a little bit bacon burger So we're talking about the origins of the story Aladdin, which has also been called Aladdin and the Magical Lamp. It's called The Thief of Baghdad. It's called The Adventures of Aladdin. It's Aladdin with one D. It's Aladdin with two Ds. Yes. It's all of those wonderful things. Double D. Single D. And of course, Disney has taken a hold of it. And of course, it's blown up in America. Before that, it was blown up in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then before that, its origins in Asia the continent of Asia. Which is a big place. It is. But there's no joke. It literally stems from almost every corner of Asia. But that's that's actually not true of Aladdin. It's true of its origin tales, which is A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. So A Thousand and One Arabian Nights is from all every corner of Asia? Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, don't get me wrong. Aladdin has made its way back to the Middle East. Interesting. But that's only after it was introduced in Europe. Right. So that's what makes Aladdin really weird, guys. You're going <laughs> to buckle in because this is not... I mean, I don't know if the average American actually knows this about Aladdin, unless you, like, look it up, but... <laughs> or we'll tell you. Don't we'll leave. leave. We'll, don't leave. Don't look it up. I'm going to tell you right now, because I did the research for you, is that Aladdin, stemming from 1001 Arabian Nights, the collection that we know today... There's, there's a few popular versions, but the most popular for the English translations are Richard Burton. And then Richard Burton's language is so obscure and weird that we attribute a lot to him, but also it's not him who started it. Before him, there was the French translation. Antoine Galland was his name. Galland. Galland. I don't know how to say it. It was just Excuse French me, I'm an American. I don't say it correctly. Actually, I won't. I wouldn't be able to say no, it. No, you don't need right? to. That's I'm okay. Sorry. He's the first one that introduced it to Europe. Mm. And uh, 1001 Arabian Nights is sort of like 
the Grimm brothers, right? Like it's a collection of stories from that or from what I thought was mainly the Middle East. But it sounds like it's not just from stories that are from just the Middle East. Yes. So talking about the origins of just 1001 Arabian Nights, not from Aladdin. Let's mm-hmm. assume Aladdin for now is removed from that category because we'll talk about where it came from. But 1001 is actually more clear. Over a thousand years old, this whole collection actually stems from several places and well, from Asia, actually. There's a Persian manuscript. There's an Assyrian manuscript. It was translated many, many times, but there was stuff found in China and in India. Mm. But the four, I think what they were saying is there's only four surviving stories from the very, very earliest translations. Interesting. That's made it into our translations today. Okay. So I, in that way, I, I told you earlier that it was kind of like the Bible. You guys didn't hear that because <laughs> we weren't on uh, air at that time. But uh, it felt kind of like a collection very similar to the Bible, right? Like mm. there's no clear origins, all coming from oral storytellers. But then the stories that were written down in these manuscripts over a thousand years old, of course, some of them don't survive. Other ones are less clear as who the author is. I was going to say, it sounds almost like a curator than it does a primary author. Exactly. Which is also very Grimm Brothers, right? They collected a lot of their stories from people not creating them all themselves they just put it into text exactly they were the collectors of the stories but not only that but everybody kind of wanted their own translations of those stories so they kept jumping around all over asia and it wasn't until it jumped into europe that it felt like a capital gain and the more people who translated got bigger profit from it Mm. because at the time actually in france they were banking on french fairy tales they were hugely popular not with children but with grown-ups so gallon was like well i know some middle eastern stories that could uh bank as well quote unquote middle eastern (laughs) right and that's where the weirdness comes in so that's a thousand and one arabian nights yes and how it traveled basically from the asian continent to europe which brought it obviously here and one of the stories in what i thought was that collection the original collection was aladdin so the year 1704, Antoine Gallen does the first translation for the Europe audience. And that's the first introduction to three tales that were added to 1001 Arabian Nights. Aladdin, Sinbad, and then Ali Baba. Two of those are pretty well known. Of course, because they were added by a Frenchman. Right. <laughs> and it's not true just in Europe. It's actually true. I found this out in the Middle East, too. Those were kind of the most popular for a while when it kind of went back exactly to the middle east yes they liked the frenchman's editions exactly interesting but the curious part is nobody knows the origins of of those three stories definitively there's theories and one of the theories is pretty pronounced which is that he heard it from an oral storyteller this 20 year old El, uh, Aleppo? Aleppo? Okay. It's a, it's a place in Syria. Oh, okay. This 20-year-old kind of, it reminded me of an Indiana Jones figure. Okay. When they described him because he worked with this excavation team mm. and he was their translator, but they would do tomb raiding and of course. <laughs> treasure hunting. Interesting. So he had all these adventures already at 20 years old. And if this was true, if he grew up in Syria, he grew up around storytellers. So he himself mm. could tell and spin a story pretty well. And uh, it was said that he told these stories back to Galland in, like, a broken French. Okay. Like, he actually spoke French to him. 
And then oh. it was Galland who kind of made it seem like it was an Arabian text that he took it from. Like it, it was Arabian in origin. Hmm. Well, can I ask a question real quick? Sure, sure. Is that considered cultural appropriation? I don't know what that means. Uh, that like a culture is, one culture is taking something from another culture and using it like it's their own. Po- uh, possibly. Okay. If okay. I understand this correctly, Galland just wanted to be able to sell this collection of stories and he wanted to make it bigger. Okay. So in order to make it bigger, he just needed more stories. Right. So whether he was maybe desperate at the time, these stories would have seemed like a godsend, right? Interesting. Like in order to publish and to make this much money, I need to make it bigger. Right. And here comes this guy that I know through another guy, and he's going to tell me stories that seem very Middle Eastern in origin. And it makes sense if he's from Syria that he'll be telling stories that are probably Syrian or around the regions of Asia. And it's true. There's all this evidence that supports the fact that many of these tales of the, well, they call them the orphan tales because there is no definitive proof. Which is a really sad title. (laughs) They're orphans. It is kind of sad. But it's also, it means that we're all sort of adopting them. Different places adopt them and change them to right. make them their own. Right. Because so nobody can claim to say that's from my culture, right. that's from my country. Did you make up that saying? Orphan tales? No, no, no. They, okay. they call them the orphan tales. That's really cool. I've right? never heard anything like that before. Right? I have to call other things that as we come across them. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what else is really... <laughs> but you're right. It makes it potentially timeless, too. Which is like the definition of archetypes, right? Jungian archetypes. It's yeah. the definition of, what do they call it? It's storytelling, but it's... Um, collective unconscious? Collective unconscious yeah. is in there as well, right? That these are like ideas and things and motifs even sometimes, like the lamp, are in our genetic material. Right. They're in our genetics, literally, as opposed to newer stories that maybe don't... I mean, you know. I know. I'm just like talking. <laughs> no, I, I agree. That's exactly what makes orphan tales, and especially these three tales, so malleable mm-hmm. for different cultures. And then, so yeah, once once these orphan tales hit Europe, that's exactly what banks the story collection. It's because of these three tales. And they're like, oh, we as European audience can see more Europe in these tales than in the actual 1001 Arabian Nights. So the big appeal then in Europe is, oh, we're going to be the wealthy rich men who just sit in our study and retranslate and reinterpret and Mm -hmm. reboot these tales because we know we can make some money off of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. You get all these translations coming around the same century with these different men in different backgrounds that reproduce the tales. And most of them actually include Aladdin, Alibaba, and Sinbad because they know that will sell in Europe. Mm-hmm. Other ones have better, like, genuine goals in mind for the text. Like, oh, they go back to the uh, Arabic translations and they try to make it a true translation. Gotcha. But others, as we see, literally are like, oh, well, I know the Middle East, so I'm going to make oh it fantastical and absurd and exaggerated <laughs> and use archaic language that nobody knows. So there's bad and there's good. Once it hits Europe... We definitely get Aladdin in that mix. So I think that kind of benefited overall the spirit, what one blog calls it, like the spirit of the Middle East. And it's something we see repeated in the film versions and television versions, even though 
as we'll talk about, I'm sure, that there's so many cross-cultural references in every version of Aladdin that we have that it doesn't make sense. Right. But it also is okay that it doesn't make sense and that maybe it is more real for European people and for us than mm-hmm. it is for people on that continent. Yeah. <laughs> they might be like, what the hell is happening? Yeah, yeah. See, that was the other big thing that happened once Galland uh, printed it is that the Chinese were like, oh, but it's set in China. Mm-hmm. And then the Muslims were like, oh, but the characters are Muslim. Oh, right. but the names are what Arabic. There's a sultan. There's an African magician. And then they re- reference Egypt in their customs. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And those are the practices of Egypt. Like nobody knows. And everybody wants to claim it since it's popular. Right. right? Well, yeah. And it speaks to us. It's not just that it's profitable necessarily. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. But also that it speaks to so many people. I, I wonder what it must be like, especially, you know, uh, later, earlier in time, if that was a, a point of contention for people. And if it was, it was probably the, like, elitist literature people who we love so much. But, I mean, you know, like, if, I don't know, I, I feel like I would notice something like that if all of a sudden our story that takes place in California now has the Canadian Mounties in it. It might be like, what's happening? Are we in the U.S. or are we in Canada? You're right. And we're not, we're not, as readers and consumers, we're not always good with impurity, the idea of an impure culture. It's like, no, we need to identify the origins because we need to know what, what. We're purists. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> and that's, that's another thing that one of these blogs was saying is that, oh, well, that means we can break the myth of this idea of culture purity mm. because the orphan tales prove us wrong. That's cool. I right? like that. I like that. And I think that's why Aladdin has survived this long. Interesting. Yeah, because it does seem like, sorry, a little tiny tangent. It does seem like other stories that may try to mimic this or have tried to mimic this sort of format would be very unsuccessful because it would feel disingenuous but in this story it actually feels genuine exactly it doesn't it works for some reason or another it's interesting we'll talk about that later too okay cool (laughs) our theories as to why we think it works (laughs) right and why we keep it so new all the time yeah and not and not new yeah you know (laughs) i mean there's new but then there's like new and we're kind of like new you know, at this point. That's true. But I, I don't see any reason why it won't become, like, new in our lifetime. Because this is obviously a story that's not going to stop being exactly. in our consciousness. Consciousnesses. Conscious nigh. Conscious <laughs> brains. In our brains. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I do, I give credit to those first European writers who seem to have stuck with the story pretty concretely. It was just how they they translated it that was different, right? Because there was always a foolish boy <laughs> with, who wouldn't want to work. Right. Father always dies because... And this is not the familiar Aladdin that a lot of people would necessarily be familiar with. This is Galen's original text. This is yeah. the, like, yeah, the, the written versions are very different in a lot of ways to some of the visual ones. Totally. Continue, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, 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 that's true. I'm glad you clarified that. We're talking about the very first introduction of Aladdin into Europe, mm-hmm. which we think is the first introduction almost ever. Although there is another theory, which I didn't mention, that there was a similar manuscript that okay. did come from Baghdad with a very similar premise of Aladdin. 
Okay. This was like 700, the year 700 something. Okay. I remember that year. <laughs> you were alive so then, high. right? Especially <laughs> 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 in Baghdad. That city was so busy. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, but also can't, that can't be verified. So why, why do you believe, why do you not believe that one as much as the other one personally? I think there was too many differences Oh, in the stories? In the stories. Interesting. And then the oral storyteller from uh, Aleppo? Aleppo? Uh-huh. Aleppo? Uh, Syria. From Syria. <laughs> Let's not get in trouble. Excuse me. I know. Sorry, you guys. Again, I'm We're from New Mexico. Best. I don't know things. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> uh, he he had a biography. And then uh, there was diaries from Galland, too, that were discovered later where he gave a little bit of credit. Oh, how nice of him. I, know. <laughs> I guess I should mention him. <laughs> this 20-year-old Indiana Jones guy. Right. I just keep picturing that. I'm like, man, this is like Syrian Indiana Jones. Totally. He's telling this awesome story. But he should get credit, even if that wasn't, you know, the pure origin of it. Totally. He influenced it in some ways. Totally. So let's give credit for Indiana Jones, shall we? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised that he didn't get any credit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lighter colored skinned people tend to be kind of bad to <laughs> darker skinned colored people. Which is funny because in movie versions, we kind of flip that around. We do. And they're like, oh, dark skinned means bad. Yeah. Red means the bad. The venom problem. The venom problem. <laughs> Which we will do a podcast on. Yes. But keep that in mind, audience, that there is such a thing as a venom problem. Yes. We will talk about what that is. And it's not about snakes. <laughs> oh, interesting, because then there's a tie for villain, <laughs> villains and, and snakes. Which is great, because we have a good friend who, who absolutely loves reptiles. And I personally love snakes, and we have another friend who loves snakes. So it's funny how we use these types of symbolism. For villains? For villains, which makes sense, but it's also like completely arbitrary, too. Exactly. Which is kind of great. But it's it's not as bad as the venom problem. But yeah. So speaking of like the English men being the villain, I I was thinking like they they did a pretty good job when it was re not interpreted retranslated to keep the elements that seemed to matter. But that's not to say there was not villainous villainous goings on at the same time because people knew that they could retranslate and then resell. Right. And there was just so much of that. So much so that actually. The English translations jumped back to the Middle East, right. and the Middle Easterners re retranslated, re interpreted, reprinted. You know, there's so crazy. much of that going back and forth <laughs> between continents of all things, and then of course it reaches the West. Right. I was I was just gonna say it kind of reminds me of Gilgamesh, but the the main difference there is that we know the origin of uh-huh. Gilgamesh for the most part, right? Uh-huh. And that. You can reinterpret it in many different ways, but there's always sort of like one particular text that people go back to. And you don't necessarily, that area doesn't necessarily regain the story of Gilgamesh and then they change it. Like that's not common. Yeah. This is a very uncommon or rare situation, it seems like. Yeah. Or it's really common and we just don't know it. There's I, you know, yeah, I was just going to say, who knows? If, so, yeah. if things aren't recorded and the origins of Aladdin is recorded pretty well, there's a bunch of... a. Uh, PhD writers online yeah. who tracked it very adamantly. Right. Because um, it's fascinating. It is How very fascinating. <laughs> it is. And they were really well done blogs. So, And they were all women, right? <sighs> I'm sorry. One was a woman, right? Well, uh, well, the blogs I was reading, I think they were both men. Oh, oh yeah. Wow, that's surprising. But I can't not, even believe that. But not Englishmen. 
<laughs> they weren't. They weren't American and they weren't Englishmen. So I mean, were they went they? to school in America. This guy was from Harvard, but I think he was Middle Eastern. Oh, okay. That's better. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> just credit, getting credit where I can. Um, we're going to talk about the most well-known English translations, and that includes Gallen's first intro into Europe all the way to the latest, which is 2008. And so the ones in between there, I think they each had something very unique. And that's why I chose those five. And also because those were the most well-known. Okay. And because we could get them either for free or oh my cheap. God. <laughs> At the local library. At the local Support li- your library. Yes, please Hashtag do. save the library. <laughs> in Gallen's original story of Aladdin, there's like this African magician who's posing as Aladdin's uncle. And it's a similar concept that he uses Aladdin in order to get the lamp. So he tells him a bunch of lies, like, oh, I'm your uncle, which he's not. <laughs> um, and Aladdin has a mother, so the uncle has to kind of trick the mother into thinking he's there to help Aladdin. Mm-hmm. And the uncle offers him a job. He offers him clothing. He offers him money. and a father figure. Basically a father figure. As well. And everything he tells him, yeah, has to do with supporting him. And because you're my brother's son, you have to do this and... You'll be well-known and wealthy for the rest of your life. It's very convincing, though. It's not... It doesn't feel... At least in some of the versions, it doesn't feel manipulative. It feels genuine, which is surprising. And most of the versions, I'm surprised, actually start describing how the magician is a trickster. It's not... There's no um, suspense. They're like, oh, by the way, reader, this is not really the (laughs) uncle. Right, right. This is a sorcerer. Which is very much a fairy tale sort of take on it, right? Right. You kind of give it away right away. Right. So the reader's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Okay, cool. He's a liar. (laughs) And here we go with this liar who's saying this lie. But it does... it it, It makes it an interesting read. Because when the deception does come, we're coming to the scene of the descent mm-hmm. where the uncle is saying, yes, go get this lamp and we'll both be rich. Right. He like takes him to a different location, basically tricks him and is like, and, well, in some of them, he presents him with the ring, right? In other versions, does he always present All him with of the these ring? versions okay. have two genies. Right. One genie from a ring, which the uncle offers Aladdin before he goes into the underground. Mm-hmm. He says, this will protect you. This will save you. Or this will open the rock you can move the rock with this ring on exactly this will give you the power because it's almost like a it's almost like a hatch in in my head sometimes it's like they're at the base of a mountain in one of them and it's like there's like a chamber underneath them and you like open a latch basically but it's covered by a rock aladdin's like i can't move this rock and the uncle is like you know wear this ring and say your family's name and you'll be able to move it with ease so he's not that's actually probably one of the only times he's not lying Right. The ring is magical. The ring contains a genie, which Aladdin doesn't know yet, but it's exactly what he describes it to be, which is a life-saving ring. So that was funny. When he first said that, I was like, huh, you're basically giving him a way out. But right. I think the magician didn't realize that. Right. Um, he was just too too focused on getting the lamp. And they were repeatedly told that Aladdin is like an idiot. Right. Throughout everything that we're reading. <laughs> which most of the translations were saying that he just needed an idiot to get the lamp. Right. But... <laughs> It's interesting. In one of them, I can't remember which one, either Payne or maybe it was Burton, who kind of threw in the whole, not prophecy, but the chosen one concept. Right. Where he used his magics to reveal that Aladdin was specifically the boy he needed. The one that, the only one that could open the the hole in the ground or whatever. Exactly. But you know what? I don't think that one is as genuine. I'm pretty Mm. sure the deception here is that he just needed an idiot boy. Yeah. It makes for better 
storytelling when you have a chosen one arguably right which we don't agree with but which is why probably the western translations and reinterpretations kept that idea right or some of them did but yeah i kind of like the idea that you know this was a mistake it just i mean it was just a happenstance that the magician came across this dumb boy yeah and it happened to be aladdin right right like he was looking for a dumb boy but it just happened to be aladdin exactly (laughs) exactly because he needed to trick somebody and i'm not that aladdin was particularly clever either right it just happened that he pissed off the uncle so much that once he descended into the the caverns and he got the lamp he was just so kind of greedy but innocently greedy that he started stuffing these stones of glass well, and his uncle told him he could. The uncle, like, basically lays out what he needs to do. And I, I think one of the chambers is he can't let any of his clothing touch the walls or he'll instantly die, which is not something we're familiar with in the Disney versions. And that, I mean, there's the whole touching the jewels, but not necessarily what he's wearing. And then other chambers, there's, like, fire in one of them, right? And there's a kind of a weird combination of things. Um, very Indiana Jones in my opinion. And then he he tells them that there's going to be this garden with these big trees and amazing looking fruit. Does he call them fruit? Because the uncle says, don't touch anything really. Go and get the lamp and there's oil, but it's not really oil. Once you have the lamp, you're allowed to stop in the garden and pick out these fruits. And that's when Aladdin, in the versions I know of anyway, I don't remember all of them, um, he starts picking them, but because he's an idiot, he doesn't know what they are. Um, he just thinks they're kind of pretty and they're big. And then, yeah, in that version, whose version was that? Uh, Hussein is the one that went into detail. And he, like, names he like names all the colors and then he names all the stones that they actually are. But he also, I believe, says Aladdin doesn't know what he's doing. So he doesn't know that they're, like, rubies, which is what tied me into the Disney one with the monkey. That giant ruby is basically supposed to symbolize all of these trees that have fruit which is very biblical and he gathers those and puts them in his clothes along with the lamp and greedy innocently greedy i like that you said that he goes back up to the surface he needs help out it's very similar to the disney version the uncle's like give me the lamp and aladdin's like no and he's like give me the lamp and aladdin's like help me out first and he's like whatever and he gets super angry and he closes the cave down on aladdin and aladdin has nothing but the ring on his finger these stones Mm -hmm. that he can no longer play with because he's gonna die and it's dark right there's no more light and unlike unlike the disney version of him like rubbing the lamp accidentally he actually ends up rubbing the ring that his uncle his false uncle gave him accidentally and most of them right well he does it in the action of praying right that's what we were talking about that so yeah it's interesting and of course when he does when he does start praying and he rubs that ring the first genie comes out and he just basically wishes that he was out of the cave and that's an interesting part too just because the genie says i'm the slave of the ring and i just thought that was really interesting because we don't really get much on that genie especially in disney obviously but at all really in the aladdin tales i don't really remember anything coming from that and we'll talk about the genie's role cool according to the middle eastern cultures too Cool. because i think maybe we can discover why the genie wasn't so much a character until it came into the west and even then only one of them right 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 (laughs) we only got one genie we had two it was originally two people there was two genies (laughs) So instead of reading each version in its entirety, what I did for both me and Jen is I I only took the scene where Aladdin, I call it Aladdin's descent. It means the character has to face something both inner and outer. Right. And this is the case in Aladdin. And even if you only know the Disney version, it's a pretty blatant 
moment where he's right entering the Latin, the Latin, the <laughs> lion's mouth. Right. And he's going to go find the lamp. Literally going downstairs, descending, which is symbolism that has been in fairy tales for a very long time. Totally. Once humans were around. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that must be the most appropriate because even if Disney kept it, from the original text, that means it's it's pretty iconic. Yeah. So that's the scene that we read for all five versions. So Galland, 1704, there was an equivalent English translation as soon as Galland's came out, hmm. mainly for like the Englishmen, meaning it was just a generic English oh. translation of Galland's French. Because oh. Galland didn't actually write it in English, oh, right? Right, he wrote right, it right, right. In, in French. So I'm, I took that one out because I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I couldn't find it. I, like I didn't know what what, what a genuine like direct Gallen translation looked like. Right. Interesting. But what we did find instead was this scholarly. He didn't travel, but he. I just picture this guy at his desk like twenty four hours. <laughs> he was the first one to actually translate all of a thousand and one into an English um, translation, uh, and he didn't even get that much credit for it. And this was pain. Um, Nicholas, or what was his name? John Payne. <laughs> Nicholas. Whatever. John Payne, 1882. <laughs> but he also, I mean, from what I remember, he also didn't really pursue it in that sense, did he? I mean, I thought part of his deal was that it was pretty low-key. Exactly. He, Yeah, he did 500 copies. Right. He knew that that wouldn't distribute. Right, right. It almost sounds like it was a pet project more yeah. than it was uh, for profit necessarily. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is cool. I respect that. It is, yeah. <laughs> and he was self-taught Arabic. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I wanted to quote a little bit of what the blog said about Payne's work okay. versus the others. He said something like, A devotee of high-flown street English, and his prose is ornate and florid, which basically means complex, like overly complex. Yeah, he's not really helping, is he? <laughs> no. But he also says the sheer magnitude of his achievement is was difficult to exaggerate, meaning at the time, this would have been a huge feat. Totally. And the fact that he didn't claim to be an expert in Arabic or any of that, but he just, it was, it was a pet project, but he dedicated a lot of his life to it. That's cool. So there should be some, according to the bloggers, some reverence there. It definitely yeah. felt very high fluent, fluent, high fluent. It sounded too complex. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it Yeah, it was very over the top in terms of, yeah, we get it. You're English, you know. That's kind of how it felt. It wasn't super accessible. And, yeah, they, they did say something about, like, this pain would be for the scholastic crowd, for the scholars. Yeah. Because he didn't mean for it to be, like, a fairy tale collection. It was for study. I wouldn't necessarily put that on a hierarchy, personally. I don't think I would put fairy tales at the bottom and scholastic reading at the top. Right. They're not... I don't, I don't see them that way. I see them more of different kinds of storytelling. So it kind of bothers me that they would assume that non-scholars wouldn't read fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah. And... It's kind of annoying that they would assume that fairy tales aren't written well. Exactly. That's a society thing. Sorry, I, I get distracted. No, no. <laughs> and again, that's probably why he only did 500 copies. Yeah, he, that's fair. He had a very specific objective in mind. Yeah. Well, you know, that goes to say, if, if you kind of uh, get used to the thy, then, asunder, yonder. Hitherto. Hitherto. <laughs> yeah. So if you kind of ignore that, you know, the the basis of the original 1001 text, the Galland version, is still there. Of the Aladdin. same events happen. And yeah. So all of that is kept very true. Nice. Which means he did pretty well self-teaching himself. Yeah. That was impressive. Yeah. Arabic's not an easy language. 
can't even imagine not easy (laughs) but you can take uh intro to arabic at the community college in santa fe just definitely no way i have a member at the gym who has been taking arabic for a few years so she's kind of worked with the the same class and the same teacher for a few years now and she's a retired person so she has time and she loves it it's she shows me some of her workbooks and it's just like wow (laughs) i heard it like almost all my life and i had no idea i i mean i don't know how to read it i barely don't know how to speak it it's very complex (laughs) and for aladdin this is to be fair for aladdin it wouldn't have been hard for him to translate because I think he'd be using the French. Right. Yes. Right. And, I mean, but he did the rest of A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. That must have been the hard part. I would assume he would still do Aladdin from A Thousand. If he was really doing this as a pet project, maybe he cross-checked it with the French version. But I would hope that he still actually translated it from Arabic. Right. Or that copy that they found. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's what I would hope so, too. It wasn't clear what he used, but... Yeah. In my mind, that's right. I'm like, yeah, he used both. He's a scholar. He would have, he would have done the work. If you're gonna spend years of your life doing this, you might as well do all of it. Yeah, which comes okay. Which comes to the sad part, which is the next English gentleman to attempt to translate is the one that's most credited. Sure. Um, Burton, Richard Burton. Richard Burton. 1885. This was only to. Four, five, three years later, because the success, not the success, because of the work of Payne, it's it said, and everybody theorizes this pretty wholeheartedly, is that he took most of Payne's work. Totally. And just reused it. And he had the profit idea in mind. Yes. Which is pretty apparent. Right. Not only that, he was an extravagant writer. Mm-hmm. He had like this reputation for being obsessed with unmentionables, they call it. Oh, interesting. And can I tell you what those yeah. were? Okay, because this is super fascinating. You're not supposed to mention them, though, right? I'm mentioning the unmentionables. <laughs> Children, turn away. Oh my no. God. Turn they're not, away. It's not, they're not watching. <laughs> Children, cover your ears. No, it's not like bad words. But he was, you know, he was called a racist, an imperialist, cranky, eccentric, obsessed with subjects like female circumcision, castration, bestiality, male homosexuality. Okay, some of those are cool. Others are not so cool. I mean, but I, I think because he was already like a racist to begin with, <laughs> he wouldn't handle those subjects well. I think he wanted to just kind of be very known right. for his work. And that included making up words when he needed to make up words, mm-hmm. changing things or omitting things that needed to be changed or just attempting to do everything. Like, oh, there's a prose and then a poetry. I want to do both. Interesting. But I'm going to do them my way because a lot of people became frustrated when that edition came out. Because? Because the language was so hard to read. Gotcha. And a lot of the time it wasn't, it didn't feel genuine. Right. Well, it wasn't. And, well, I mean, yeah, it wasn't. But also, <laughs> like, he, he's the traveler. He's the one that did spend time right. in the Middle East. But because I think he was coming from a very specific place, you know, he wasn't going to change his his um, style. Yeah, which is fair. But what did you think of that translation? Um, it was Okay. I thought it was interesting to read how what he changed from the pain version. It was a lot easier to read, obviously, because um, it wasn't so highbrow. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know. What did you think? It read it read a lot like pains, which makes sense because he took a lot of pains work. But also he the things that he did decide to include, I think, were interesting. It it kind of shares the fact that he was a traveler versus mm-hmm. Payne, who was just the scholar, because he seemed to like mention Allah, for example, rather than just God. 
because he knew enough going to the Middle East to know that they some were were practicing Islam, right? Right, Islam or well, yeah, and he probably assumed that that's what Aladdin well, was, yeah, of was Islamic <laughs> versus kind of this ambiguity that came from Galland and from Payne, where it's like, oh, you know, he probably is, but we're not actually going to say Allah. We're just going to say God because there's a God there and there's also a God here in Europe. So you get it. You're right. not offended. Whereas Burton would have been like, oh, no, they have Allah. We have God. That's not, you know, I don't know if that's what he meant, but he me- he mentions it, which I did appreciate. It yeah. gives it a more cultural specificity. Yeah, definitely. They're not very engaging for me. Yeah, that diction's very distracting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's partially that, but I think it's also just like there's a lack of scene building. There's a lack of location. Like, you're supposed to locate the reader. And I never felt really truly located. It kind of felt like it was all cerebral. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't wasn't there, so I wasn't really as invested in it. I don't really remember lots of, like, there weren't any particular lines where I was like, oh, that, you know? It was all just kind of like, okay, cool, moving on. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. The bloggers did say that there was, they could tell there was an appreciation for the culture but they still exaggerated to the point where it became non-respectful. Right. Okay, who's next? So we jump We jump about 100 years That's not too bad. forward here. Uh, Hassan? How do you say his last name? Hussein. Hussein. Hadaway. Hadaway. 1990 was when his tr- translation came out. You were just born, right? Not yet. Oh. One year later. Oh. Aw. You were just born. Uh, it was actually already a year. We're both a year off. <laughs> anyway, oh, it's right his goal was basically to, to be as true to the Assyrian manuscripts as possible. So unlike Galland and Payne, who had the very intentional audience in mind, he felt like he wanted to have that true culture of Middle East, but have it in English translation. Which is kind of ideal for a translation, isn't it? Totally. I mean, if I were doing a translation, I think that's what I would want to capture. Exactly. Exactly. So he was doing it more for like the culture preservation. But that might also be a time thing too, 1990s. Big difference from 18 whatever. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Language was already much different. Oh, and in this one, Aladdin is Allah al-Din, right? That's right. Which is interesting. It's still Aladdin pretty much when you read it, but it's Allah al-Din. I wonder... Do you think that that's probably the Assyrian? Yeah, I think like, so. original. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine, mm-hmm. or at least that's the proper way to spell his name, even if that's not necessarily how it was spelled in the original, quote unquote. Right, right. This is how a Middle Easterner would spell it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like. I really appreciated a lot of that. So yeah, what are your first impressions on that reading compared to Payne and Burton? It's a little different than what I kind of expected, I guess, but. I I really liked it because I could, like, see everything that was happening. At points, it gets a little over. Like, I get it. We don't have to keep talking about the same thing. But for the most part, it's nice to, to be located. And I, I like this, the time they spend between the magician and Aladdin. I like sort of the relationship. You finally, you know, you get to see Aladdin and his mother. Um, there's a couple. I know that's not the scene we're talking about, but <laughs> just in general, I thought that I liked, I really liked how those relationships kind of came across in this version versus other versions. 
And the, the time he spent on subjects of culture, of scene building, I mean, not scene building as we know no, today, but... but just describing the descent. And it's still the same, you know, there's five chambers that he must go through. There's a fruit tree. Right. He thinks the fruits are just pieces of glass. You know, all of that is right. very similar to all these early translations. But the way he sets it up feels grounded and feels more relatable. I actually have images based on what he wrote in my brain now. You know, like I can see the bottom of the mountain where he meets with the with his uncle, quote unquote. I never got to see those before in my mind's eye. So it was nice to actually be like, oh, there's an image associated with this. To me, that's really important storytelling it's because i'm image based so <laughs> totally and i mean for me i'm, I'm not gonna lie the diction in the first two were very hard for me to visualize anything mm. but as soon as you i get to like a plain english that i'm familiar with suddenly the scene of the magician who's posing as his uncle mm -hmm. he creates a ring and from his magic he breaks into the the ground right aladdin is like oh what is this terrifying thing but that's okay the uncle's like, oh, we're going to become rich as long as you just go in there, go through the chambers, don't touch anything. There's going to be a lamp. Bring the lamp back up to me. And But all of that scenario suddenly felt like real a scene. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. just thine fruits and right. <laughs> past yonder chambers. And uh, yeah. I, you know, it's very distracting. It sounds right. like poetry, whereas this one was, was fairy tale. And I, I think that's beneficial. I wish more writers take note of that use that more often because i do think that it i mean it obviously depends on your audience but it would be refreshing to see more stories be written in this way and have people understand it and see the images that you're creating see the story you're creating as opposed to making it specifically for a certain type of person who doesn't necessarily want that and that's fine and everything but i just i think in terms of storytelling you want to reach as many people as possible you want to make it universal yeah so the final version we looked at, which is also the latest one, 2008, the Lions version, we call it. Mm -hmm. It's it's a couple that right. translated and wrote it. Now I kind of forgot. Oh, Malcolm and Ursula Lyons. L-Y-O-N-S. As in not in Lyons. It's too bad. But I, I believe one of those writers is a woman. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would make her a first translator? Probably. I actually, well, I don't know. Because I didn't research all of them, but this is definitely one of the only female translators listed. It wouldn't surprise me. I think like Gilgamesh, I go back to again. One of the first female translators for Gilgamesh was like six or seven years ago. So Wow. And it's not like women don't know how to translate things, just saying. Right, right. And we found, right, that she didn't even do a whole lot of translating, right? It was mainly Malcolm. I'm not sure how much of that includes Aladdin either. But in any case, I yeah. think just the fact that she was she was involved makes it a very different version. I would be interested, I think, in reading that entire book. Did they do a whole Thousand and One Nights? Yeah, and they go by night. Their version goes right. by night, which I think is interesting. And it not only, it okay, it does feel much longer than all the other versions. But I also think that's because it's very similar to Hussein, who who wants to translate to the culture. Meaning if there was poetry, they want to attempt the poetry because it, it was there for a reason. And if there was more prose in this section or if there was more time in the location, you know, a lot of that they want to keep. And again, I just, I tend to respect that more. The lion's 
and the the Hussein. I respect both of those versions a lot more. That's just how I feel. It's not a fact. It's a feeling. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And it's definitely the imagery from the Lions version is the images I remember the most. Right. And I mean, that's. I hope that's not just because it's the latest version. I mean, that's definitely going to be a part of it, but I don't think it necessarily means all of it. Right. Because we also know that they are attempting to give it the respect that it deserves to whatever version they're basing it off of which probably didn't have a lot of respect from that. You know what I mean? So. Right, right. And it felt the most respectful of characters, too. Like, the, when they we intro- introduced the princess. Totally. Because Aladdin does seem like this weird boyish character who who kind of mistreats the idea of marriage and wanting something but in this version in the lion's version it almost seems like he taught himself his own lessons that way when the oddity of being married to a sultan's daughter came about it wasn't so odd because he had grown up and he knew when to use the genie and that you know having everything in the world isn't everything and he kind of you know, he it is it? No, I know. <laughs> I don't know. Everything I've read says the opposite. So. Right. He, he became more <laughs> likable in this version right, for yeah. me. Totally. So the last version we looked at was a very different version because I think most of these interpretations so far had grown-up audiences in mind. But then if you ask any American child, for example, yeah. like, do you know the story of Aladdin? Right. And they would say yes. But if we're not looking at the movie version, they would say yes to this translation we're looking at now, which is Andrew Lang. And that's what's in the children's collections of stories of uh, folk tales. I have an anthology collection, and that's Andrew Lang. So anything child-related. And this version, of course, is totally dumbed down. Not, like, offensively or anything, but they omit everything that doesn't seem important. Right. Like right at the beginning, it's like, oh, there was this bratty child who upset his father, <laughs> and his father died. Yeah. <laughs> it's not subtle. Exactly. But isn't it one of the most prominent versions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think most Americans would have read that version. Right. Right? And think it's maybe simplistic, and it is. Which is a shame, because even Lions or, or Hussein, mm-hmm. you know, very easy to read, but it's it feels more complex, intricate. Characters mm-hmm. are more dynamic it's right. because it's not just a summary of Aladdin. Right, it's actually Aladdin. That being said, I really like the Andrew Lang version. I mean, I it was in I think it was the one that was in my version of A Thousand and One Nights, which was like an Amazon version. So they probably just pulled things from all kinds of sources. But I really liked it. I thought for that medium. It still works. I still enjoyed it. It just isn't as thorough. And I remember a bunch of illustrations. As a child, when I was reading Andrew Lang's versions, they came with such intricate illustrations. Nice. So I think that's definitely made a difference in my mind, too. Totally. But yeah, so simplistic, just as like myth or folktale would seem, Andrew Lang's version does that very well. It's cool. These are the things you do need to know. And it's all kept, right? The five chambers, the mm. the African magician posing as the uncle. Right. There's still a mother. There's still a sultan, the yes. daughter, a palace that has, you know, a missing window. Right. That's in all of them. Yeah. <laughs> these details are still preserved. Not something you see in the Disney version. Right. Probably like, what window? What pal? What do you <laughs> Yeah. There's a big, the written... Aladdin has this big element at the end, or not even at the end. It's like the second half of the story. Yeah, it really the is. building of this magnificent palace. 
And again, the stones come back into place. Yes. And this idea of like wealth represented in structure and right. It's really fascinating. It is. Yeah. And some of that's it's it's kept when when the genie creates Aladdin as the salt as the uh, as the prince, right? It's yeah. like his transformation and here's your your animals, your slaves, your gold. Gold and, and yeah. <laughs> you know, that's your transformation. That's totally. what wealth means. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about it's still all about procuring a woman. Oh yeah. <laughs> she happens to be a sultan's daughter, right? Which is basically happenstance which is kind of nice but it's also like okay <laughs> and in all these versions i like i like how the mother like flips out when she hears that her son wants a princess right she's like are you nuts yeah <laughs> i mean you have this magical genie and i still don't think you can do it you know <laughs> i was looking at articles for aladdin and the disney aladdin especially and there was an article i found about how a lot of disney's characters or stories have female princesses or females that get along with their dads with their father figures and something you don't see a lot is a mother figure especially with a son and so it's really uh, i mean it's of course disney didn't include that in their version of aladdin but it is a recurring theme in the story of aladdin and i just love it i love that the mother is like and she's like a little old asian woman because they're in china so I can just imagine her like hitting him every time he does something stupid and like it's just I love that image of a mother and son. And their relationship develops in the story. Totally. Totally. And she I think she when Aladdin seems to kind of grow up even on his own when he starts learning trade and when he respects himself enough to to know he can win the princess like all of these things I think mm -hmm. are changing the mother too totally and suddenly she's not destitute and concerned about a son but she's right. helping the son with these magnificent impossible dreams totally so I'm like wow yeah what a weird scenario for a mother first of all but yeah <laughs> she goes for it yeah she's like yeah okay I'll try it yeah <laughs> let's see what happens i think it adds an interesting dynamic to the story yes. because then aladdin isn't it just changes his character and and then of course the the father and daughter relationship is preserved in this story too because the sultan mentions several times that the daughter is like his biggest treasure even though he threatens her many times and doesn't seem to care about aladdin all that much unless he has wealth but you know all of that aside all translations seem to mention this idea that he loves her and he will make sure she's happy. I mean, there's a lot of standard sexism in there, and it's not okay. <laughs> we can't keep saying it's okay, but it's also like, yeah, that seems true. <laughs> you know and, what I mean? And that, that relationship was obviously carried over into our interpretations, right? Because yes. every version of Aladdin in the Western world seemed to preserve like, oh, the Sultan loves Jasmine, loves his daughter, loves the princess, you know? We get different degrees of that as well. I'm not, it's not at all bad. It's just somewhat bad. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for hanging in there, because that was the history of all the translations of Aladdin and its origins. And what do you remember what year that was that we started with, like the earliest date? Uh, well, the 1001 Arabian Nights are over 2,000 years old. Or 1,000 so, years old, sorry. 2,000 is the Bible. So there's 1,000 years there for you to chew on. And then for next time, we are going to do the Aladdin movies. And that should cover all different kinds of, of uh, Aladdin films. Um, and then hopefully we can talk about how the story versions compare to some degree with the interpretations. Or wait, 
Interpretations? I always get this confused. Translations? Translations. So the interpretations, so this is like the translations episode. And the next one is going to be the interpretations episode. You're welcome. So we'll see you next time. Episode two of Aladdin will be out soon. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at ByteThePen, or if you would like to email us, you can reach us at ByteThePen at gmail.com. Thank you.